0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness, and work culture. Hi, this is Bruce Daisley. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And this is episode 13. Today's guest is Rory Sutherland. Rory is obviously one of Britain's biggest brains. And whenever I think of that, it it needs qualification. Because when I think of someone who's brainy, I think of the kid at my school who could do the Rubik's Cube in seven seconds. And yet, that is brainy but Rory's proper brainy, books brainy, long words brainy, crosswords brainy, not Rubik's cube brainy. Rory's a media man. He's also known as, as one of the people who helped popularise behavioural economics in the UK. He's well known and esteemed in media and Rory's written for the, the Spectator and appeared all over UK media. The background is I gave a talk about work culture at Rory's company Ogilvy. My talk covered a few of the things I've I've learned about of these podcasts and the books I've read. I've tweeted the presentation from our Twitter handle. Uh, you can find that by searching Eat Sleep Work Repeat. But if you've listened, you'll know these things. You know that interruptions are toxic. That we want to achieve purpose in work. Having a friend at work makes us happier. After my presentation, Rory came on and and we ended up having a a sort of an engaging discussion and decided to reprise it here. So we talk about work culture, we talk about behavioural economics, lots and lots more. As ever, Rory is enthralling company. Just to give you an insight, throughout our chat, Rory smoked his vape pen. And why the hell not? We're all adults. I'm not telling tales. It's a free country. I merely mention it. Because at times, it does vaguely sound like a cartoon character has joined us and he's snoozing in the room. Either that or someone's going in hard on a crack pipe. Like, you know, when the News of the World used to report the demise of soap stars. Anyway, there's no crack. Oh, no, listeners. And there's no snoozing here. What follows is pure caffeine for your brain. Uh, Anyway, let's go. To kick us off, ask Rory why you thought so many behaviours were hard to change. I think what you realise, and th- there are an awful lot of behaviours which exist
2: not because they're beneficial, but because they're stuck. And so, you know, an example I'd give of something which is, I mean, funnily enough, I came here by cab from Charing Cross and paid by credit card contactlessly. Now, all the cabbies, although they're mostly pretty grumpy, they all admit that since every cab's accepted credit cards, the use of cabs has gone up noticeably. Because it it just changes the whole... I mean, if you think about it. It was getting to a point where a cab was your largest ever item of cash expenditure, wasn't it? That you needed 50 quid in your wallet. And the simple reason you needed to have that 50 quid was in case you needed to take a
0: cab. Or you didn't want to have that argument with the cab driver about asking him to stop. To stop at a cash machine. Exactly.
2: Which was... You see, I used to work with someone who was... I mean, I used to do it. But I worked with someone who was weirdly embarrassed about it. They just wouldn't do it. You know, they wouldn't do that business of stuff. And I suppose there's the fear that if your cash machine, cash card
0: fails. I think once you had that argument once, though, once you've had one bad one, bad one who bad, goes crazy you, yeah. you, just can't be bothered, can you? No, you'd you'd, no, no, you'd no. rather, at two in the morning, you'd rather walk two streets down, get money out, than... than risk the argument and so and also i suppose yeah we've got to remember you know a lot of people you don't know how much the damn
2: journey is going to cost when you get in either Mm. i mean there are a whole load of things you know there's a reason why mcdonald's charges you up front rather than at the end of the meal you know which is that if you're cash constrained people don't like paying for something at the end and yet of course until you made it mandatory and everybody adopted the new behavior except credit cards there was no incentive for an individual driver to do it because he'd get all the costs and none of the gains I think a lot of I think a lot of new work behaviors will will require some sort of jolt or intervention mm. you know because if you're the only person who works from home you're immediately the lazy guy actually I noticed particularly among people who live outside London uh, the frequency of working from home is pretty high and that any station car park in commuterville Fridays it's you know a third empty you know the same car parks which are difficult to park in on a Tuesday my God you know. Yeah. So it's it's going on, but I mean, there's a certain, there's still a certain level of shame against around it, which yeah. is ridiculous. Because you know, I mean, I would argue the biggest shame is going into an office and then emailing rather than talking to people. Should be a more embarrassing behaviour than going home to do your email. Yeah, I was reading something about social physics the other day, which is this guy. Oh, yes, who, I don't even I've met him. funnily enough, he's he's from MIT, isn't That's right, he? Yeah. He's written a book called Social
0: Physics. His name is, uh, I've got his couple down here, so Alex Pentland. That's it. That's the guy, yeah. Yeah, and his whole thing is, social physics, his whole thing is that you can look at, um, we're very familiar with with using IQ as a measure of an individual's intelligence, but you can also look at organisational intelligence in the same way, system thinking, and it's the interactions between people. Of course, yeah. uh, And principally, he says, face-to-face interactions are are the most powerful thing that you can have. And uh, effectively, he says you know, we've orchestrated this world where we're communicating via email or we're communicating via video conference thinking it's a proxy for face-to-face. Yeah. And I I was struck by the the thing that you and I were talking about. I was struck by the thing that you said, which was, you know, you come into work and you don't do emails when you're at work. No, I mean, the reason for that
2: is that I suddenly realised, well, look, that when I first – and the thing that worries me about this often is that younger people – uh, younger people don't know any different. Mm. I mean, I, at least you and I, you, you less than me. But you've had a bit of experience of the working environment pre the technological revolution, in that you had to come into work to make a photocopy. You had to come into work to produce a document, uh, to produce a presentation. To t- actually, my, lap, my desktop was all I had. I didn't have a laptop for the first few years. Send a telex. Even making an international phone call, you basically came into the office to do it because it cost 29 quid. And you didn't want that on your un phone Mm. bill. And so the office fulfilled a lot of functions then. And once you left the office, there was a limit other than working with pencil and paper and just generally thinking. There was a limit to how much work you could do. Now, 90% of, of what an office used to be for is just as available at home, assuming you've got reasonable broadband. It's pretty much just as available at home as it is at work. So you have to re-ask the question, so what's the office now for? Let's strip it down to its absolute core function because it isn't photocopying. And um, the answer really comes out as as two things, meeting people by pre-arrangement and meeting people by accident. And the problem I always notice is that when you're doing email, you're not meeting people by accident because it's a fundamentally antisocial behaviour. And so... You're essentially doing in one place what would be better done somewhere else because there's no comparative advantage to doing email in the office. There is a comparative advantage to wandering around and chatting in the office. And actually creating a bit more idleness would be a plus. Mm. So let me just explain. In, in the old 1980s ad land, there were quite a lot of periods, particularly in the creative department, but to be honest, everywhere, where there wasn't much you could do. Okay, you you'd put something into the studio and you were waiting for it to come out or the photography had been done and, you know, you're waiting for the first retouching to be done and whatever. All those things were kind of, created a kind of enforced downtime. The enforced downtime was, yeah, mostly wasted, as all these things are, but then it was wasted in the way in which it's a highly special kind of waste, which is that, you know, okay, 80% of it's wasted, but 20% of it turned out to be really valuable. You'd have conversations which otherwise wouldn't have happened. And it occurred to me that email really, unfortunately, soaked up all that unenforced time. So discretionary time disappeared because email, not because it's important, but because you're terrified it might be important. On average, never very important. But because you're absolutely terrified that if you're away from your desk for five minutes, you've missed something that's vital. What email does, it's a kind of attention vampire, just as the mobile phone to a degree is an attention vampire when you go out to dinner with friends. You know, there's absolutely no point in going to dinner with friends to look at your phone. And I think we've all got to relearn this stuff because, of course, the technology arrived so fast. There was no time for sort of etiquette or practices or behavioural
0: rules to emerge. Email seems to be the, the worst possible thing. It's, it, it expands to fill the time available. If you've got five minutes, you can go in into your inbox and you can rattle out a couple of sort of very simple binary responses. If you've got an hour, if you've got two hours, then it becomes you read the email six times. You, you go over it, you still respond. No, so seems- it
2: soaks up absolutely yeah. any
0: amount of time. It's also worth remembering that the quicker you
2: respond, it breeds. So there's something about it which is almost dysgenic, so that... By and large, the less important the email, the more people it's copied to, um, uh, the easier it is to respond to because it's there, it's trivial. So you respond faster. So the worst emails drown out the more important emails very rapidly. And of course, the faster you respond, the more you're contributing to this because, um, you know, generally people find it easy to respond to trivial things and hard to respond to important things. So there's a kind of reverse prioritization which then takes effect. And um, it's, a, it's actually a terrible, terrible form of communication in many ways, because also we don't really have a meter in our heads for how much we're accomplishing. I'll, I'll give you an example of this, which I find very strange and very interesting, which is, I don't know if you've ever had a customer service encounter where you use live chat yeah. rather than speech. <laughs> yes. Now, the strange thing is it actually takes a hell of a long time, but you don't mind. Because you're sort of getting on with other things or watching TV while it's going on. And, you, you know, you still have use of your computer. You don't you're not forced to hold a telephone to your head, you know. And so strangely, we we're really satisfied with live chat, even though to solve a problem, live chat would probably take 10 minutes where on the phone it would take three. I think in the same way, because email makes us feel busy, I don't think we realize how inefficient and time consuming it really is. But no, there's something about it which is bad, but what's particularly bad is the the fact that we confuse what's urgent and what's important, mm. and the fact that when you have this thing that effectively soaks up discretionary time, it reduces all those accidental encounters which modern architecture is designed to create. you know I'm mean, I'm skeptic about open plan, okay I, you know I, I actually think that. Uh, It's, to be honest, it's adopted because it's cheaper. You can fit more people in. Uh, Whenever they attempt to do real measurement of its effects, it's mildly negative. There are certain people who find it more, I'm not that bothered by external noise, but there are some people for whom it's a real problem. But nonetheless, I I do accept there is an upside to open plan offices, which is that you bump into more people by accident. In other words, you know, I'm one of the best places I can sit in Ogilvy is not at my desk, it's at the cafe downstairs, because everybody
0: walks past. Although I think that's different because if you look at the evidence for open plan, open plan people tend to interact less with people around them because they're in this constant state of interruption. So what you're saying there, going to sit in the cafe, I completely agree. That would be the benefit of being in a sort of confined office style space. You then go and interact with people. But open plan, it generally, most the evidence... The the only saving grace for open plan is the fact that it's cheaper. It's cheaper, yeah. And yeah. I, I mean I, fortunately I, I actually prefer
2: a mild level of background noise. Yeah. I don't think it affects me that much. Um I'm also not generally having conversations which are confidential, which is, you know, by the nature of the beast. But 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 I think um I, I think it's one of those cases where it surprises me how little attention is paid to this, because there tends to be the assumption that what people do if left to their own devices is optimal. And I know enough behavioural science to know that, no, you know, uh, there are things which effectively hack your brain. I mean, email, I would argue, uh, and and mobile devices to some extent have many of the properties of an addiction. But mobile things undoubtedly have that property of addiction, which is that you feel an increasing sense of loss or losing out uh, as time progresses. Yeah. And there's an element of compulsion around it. And I think the interesting thing is that w- what we forget is that the great dream, I think it's in one of the early... Um, uh, very early books by that Canadian writer, the sort of um, uh, sort of tech writer, very early... Douglas
0: Copeland?
2: Yeah, Douglas. Yeah. It's, an early, it's an early Douglas Copeland piece, which is that the dream, of the whole dream of, of Silicon Valley ultimately was to, maybe less now, but it was to make geography irrelevant. Mm. So that where you were didn't affect what you could do. And it's a dream which has been pretty much accomplished. I mean, mm. <laughs> uh, I've got British Gas Hive... Uh, You know, I turned my central heating on from Sydney Airport briefly, just because you could. Now, my children who've grown up with this technology thought I was being weird. But to me, it was still magical that you could sit on the other side of the world and briefly cause a boiler, apologies to any environmentalists, but briefly (laughs) cause a boiler to fire 22,000 miles away. I did turn it off very yeah. quickly afterwards, I promise. But but then, you know, that's been achieved. Now, the downside of that, and there's always a downside, I think I, I think one of the advantages of being a bit old is you realise that, contrary to what you think when, you, when you're young, where you believe things absolutely, when you get a bit older, you realise that everything's a bit of a trade-off. You know, there's an upside if you're lucky. It outweighs the downside, but there is always a downside. And the downside of that achievement is that previously what we focused on depended on where we were. So when we're in the photocopier room, we focused on photocopying. And when we're in the pub, we focused on chatting to our friends. And different places only allowed you to do one thing. So that was what you did. And you did it with the whole of your brain. And the problem with being able to do everything everywhere is that you don't concentrate on what activity has the greatest comparative advantage at any one time, e.g. I'm in the office, so I think emailing people will be a bit dumb because I can do that after the kids go to bed. Instead, you just do what seems most pressing to you wherever you are. And that might be Candy Crush, and it might be Twitter, it might be Facebook, it might be email um, among work-obsessed people. Some of those restrictions which used to be applied by geography probably need to be replaced by writ. So I noticed that I think Ms. Daimler benz in Germany have a policy that when you go on holiday, your email's switched off. There's an auto-reply. You don't get any of your emails. You're presumably contactable in an emergency. But they realise that people need a proper holiday. And so the whole thing basically goes to off. You know, I I used to, unfortunately, I used to spend an hour of every day on holiday, at least maybe two, doing emails, simply because I couldn't face getting back to a thousand of the things and so I, i i'm beginning to think that we you know sainsbury interestingly as a company have a policy there are no internal meetings on a friday they lock the meeting rooms and actually i think we probably need to impose some artificial restraints simply to regain that level of focus that used to be provided by geography or location or context and now no longer is
0: I think the interesting thing there is that we're not even experimenting with it, are we? So back to what you said before—that there's a lot of principles of work that we're not really challenging. But you know, one of those things in the in the uh, social physics book, he said that what they found is that in a call center, so an artificial environment, but an environment actually that's very suited to measuring the impact of productivity on changes. And one of the things they found is that if you put a team to go on a simultaneous break, and they they found when they put teams on a simultaneous break. Their speed in resolving queries afterwards went improved by 15%. Yeah. And it was because their, their interactions, their stimulus really helps. And, and I th- I it's, it's, where, it's where psychology and
2: engineering diverge, yeah. isn't it? Because engineering yeah. would say, you need to stagger the brakes. And psychology would say, well, hold on, you'll get no camaraderie,
0: you'll get no information sharing. Yeah. I and mean, I think they said the benefit of being a vast call center is if you've got. 3,000 people, the teams, sometimes there's is enough cover in specific areas. That, you that It didn't mean that, you know, someone said phone back later for that part. You could test it, but it was just the fact that them interacting with each other, number one, having a proper break, number two, interacting with each other. The net result was more productivity. And it's back to, I, I remember reading, uh, we um, we don't really experiment at all with how works work works. No, and I think there's a danger that you get a kind of, I mean,
2: one of the most important things you've referenced, which is undoubtedly true, is that working very, very hard, first of all, the, first of all, the benefits actually flatten off, and then you reach a point where it's in fact negative. You become worse overall because you're not adequately rested. I'd also argue you become worse if you don't take breaks. Mm. A very, very simple way I think I can prove that, interestingly, which is I do a lot of cryptic crosswords, mm. what am I? but you know, when I'm not doing email on the train. And one of the most extraordinary things you notice if you do cryptic crosswords is you can be completely stuck. And uh, you basically go and make a cup of tea and wander off and you come back and six of them fall into place immediately. And it is it is really, really important that, in other words, you become frame fixated, I think. So, for example, you're convinced, without the break, you're absolutely convinced that the word D-O-E-S in the cryptic clue means does. And you're completely baffled because it looks like the answer's dear. And then you go and have a cup of tea and you come back and you realise that D-O-E-S in this context means doze rather than does. Now, obviously, the brain defaults to does. Um, and you realise that the surface of the clue uh, is actually doze, not does. And therefore, dear is a perfectly valid answer and you write it in. But without the tea break, you would be stuck staring
0: at it, convinced that it says does. Did you ever read that remarkable book? It's like 1936. James Webb, James Young Webb. Oh, uh, Technique for Producing Ideas. Yeah, and, and, fantastic. And, you know, like, it's the best £3 you could spend on Kindle. Yeah. Because... Afro- oh, is it Kindle? Yeah, 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 yeah. I yes. mean, like, it, it actually was quite a nice little... It was a tiny little pamphlet. But his whole is. You know, and and it's a million people have reached the same conclusion. An idea is created by two adjacent ideas coming together. And normally the production process is you spend a lot of time thinking about it and then you go away and allow the ideas to ferment. And you almost have to trick yourself into doing it.
2: I noticed that it's always interesting that, in fact, Archimedes had the idea, if he didn't have that idea at all, but he had it stepping into the bath, not while he was sitting in the bath. Because when you're in on the line between one state of action and another um, tends to, uh, while you're making that flip, getting off a train for some reason, you know, there there are strange little moments which seem to be peculiarly productive, and it, it is almost that you're tricking your brain into letting go of the usual straitjacket of assumptions that it's brought to bear, and when that straitjacket jacket briefly falls off. Uh, that's when you suddenly have some sort of creative insight or uh, or magical
0: leap. Yeah, absolutely. And so on the subject of, like, reinventing work and thinking of different ideas, I remember an article that you wrote on a blog or a campaign a few years ago, which was, like, the idea that Ogilvy should... Switched down to a four day week. It was, I think it was, you were talking about the spirit of David Ogilvie. Well, there's a bit of me.
2: Certainly, certainly
0: I asked the question very
2: simply. What was the idea then, remotely? Ogilvie as an agency must have made an absolute fortune over the years from selling laptops and broadband uh, with a photograph of someone basically using a laptop next to a lake, you know. And that promise of the technological revolution hasn't really been delivered in reality and my argument is that look if we're not changing our behavior our working behavior at all in response to technology what was the point of inventing the internet most significant technologies the effects are visible from the air you know the canal age the railway age you can go and see people are living in different places people up south london is entirely a product of the railway really isn't it Um, and yet Really, patterns of work don't seem to have changed much since, you know, 1980. And I would argue commuting, which is something which should be. What I think happens is there is a better alternative, but we can only get to the better alternative if we all move simultaneously. And the example I gave earlier about taxis accepting credit cards is a classic case, which is that even though they're pretty grumpy, all taxi black cab drivers now admit that since it was compulsory to accept credit cards, business has gone up quite dramatically, I mean, palpably. One of the major competitive advantages of Uber has actually been eliminated at a stroke. The problem was, I think it's what economists call a coordination problem, which is that if you, as an individual cab driver, accept credit cards, you get all the cost of accepting credit cards, including, I imagine, the tax position, but we won't delve into that, but you get all the downside and the hassle of accepting credit cards and installing equipment, but none of the gains. The gains only come when there's some critical mass of cab drivers, probably re- well, all of them in this case, uh, who are obliged to accept cards. And so I think it's the same thing, that there is a new, a possible new working behaviour that could be adopted. The problem is, is that the first people to try and adopt it will get the costs, but not the benefits. And so it is with working from home. I mean, I think you're, in many cases, you're more productive. Uh, you certainly save a very large amount of time each day, uh, not farting around. Um, but the problem is, is that if you're the first person to adopt the new behaviour, You become the lazy guy if you're not careful. And there's a very, very strong conformist streak of presenteeism in business still. Ultimately, it worries me because it's probably it's really down to a lack of trust. You know, you should start by hiring people who are self-motivated. I would argue that when people work from home because they feel a little bit guilty about it, they overcompensate and actually produce more. That there's something there that's lacking, which is preventing businesses from making that change. So, you know, I I, I don't think I don't think I can come up with a perfect answer. I I wondered about an answer which is, you know, that you actually restrict email responses to set hours of the day for example, and certainly productivity gurus have said that the single best thing you can do technologically to improve productivity is to reduce the frequency with which your email client checks for new email. So if you've got the option of turning check every five minutes down to check every hour, that's a really, really significant change you can make. Because otherwise, you see, what happens is the most important email is the one that just happened to come in. Now, if you think about it, if if your postman... Came every time you got a letter it wouldn't be a good thing it'd be a bad thing the great thing with the postman he comes once a day i have a bunch of letters i can look at the envelopes and prioritize them pretty rapidly into everything from open now to don't open ever um and that takes you know four minutes of every day i've never burdened by the information overload occasioned by my postman but if that postman Funnily enough, I think in the Victorian age, London postman would come about five times a day. But if the postman was coming literally 20 times a day, you'd have to get up and look Mm. every damn time you heard the letterbox go. Now, that isn't a good thing. That's a bad thing. So so I think getting from here to there is one of those things which is we'll need to carve a path. I've wondered about things saying, OK, here are 10 productivity rules. Please uh, choose which four you want to adopt and adopt them. You know so it's you know in other words, you only do email but I think unless people have heuristic easy to follow
0: rules. The problem is, is that this problem won't go away. Mm. I saw something in the US, which is the results only work environment, and really Best Buy tried it. So it's not like a, a, a trendy uh, Silicon Valley company doing it. And what they did, and it's just a- autonomy played out to the, the vast extreme. And they say, when they encourage you to do the results only work environment, which is where your boss agrees with you, this is what you're gonna accomplish. And I guess it will be on a weekly, monthly, and quarterly basis. And after that, do whatever you want. And they, they say they have to do a substantial session at the start about sludging, which is where they stop you trash-talking other people's working hours.
2: Is this is this in the office environment or this the is, retail this, environment?
0: Is a, this is their headquarters. Headquarters, their headquarters. right. Uh, about 3,000 people uh, doing it there. But the, the end of impact, the people leaving went down by 90%. Satisfaction at work improved, Sick days reduced. And it's largely because they said... Right, this is what you have agreed to produce for us, I mean, and now do it. There's a proof thing here, which is sick
2: days in the UK are dropping quite dramatically. It's If you like, it's proof that a certain amount of work can be done from home, because a day that would previously have been taken as a sick day right. is now a day where someone says, I'm not coming in today, but I'm going to work on this presentation. Uh, And, and, you know, there are questions where you have, you know, a bad cold where, let's face it, I don't don't want people coming to work where they're bloody ill anyway. It's disgusting. So, you know, the sick days are falling very dramatically because what used to be taken as a sick day is now working from home. And, and, you know, that's proof, I think, that there's some way to travel in this. What we also don't know is because we don't, in a lot of the modern work environment, we don't actually know what's productive or not. So people just respond by working very hard because there's no, if you look at craftsmen, they don't tend to work insane hours because they can actually see Mm. what they're doing and they know what their output is. And in an office environment, where to be honest, an awful lot of it's bullshit. The best way to demonstrate that you're valuable to the organization is by putting in hours, because it's the only form of signaling there is. Now, one of the things I think is interesting to ask is, if you look around an office and you ask yourself a very cynical question, okay, which is, Of every person around me, how many people are engaged in what is genuine economic value creation and how many people are engaged in arse covering? Now, where arse covering might be just being present. Well, it's very, of course, arse covering might just be being there, looking busy. Arse covering is often easy to mistake or disguise as rigor as well. So, you know, I mean, I I worry sometimes that quite a lot of market research is really done not for the illumination that it brings, but essentially to defend people um, from personal consequences if what they're engaged in goes wrong. One of the things, one of the problems about fear of that kind is it's a huge, huge restriction on imagination because it's, I, I often use this phrase in presentations where I say it's much, much easier to be fired for being illogical than it is for being unimaginative. I'll give you an example of this, which we, the we change, we call it the, um, uh, the Heathrow effect, which is it, it, it's a, it kind of tragedy in a way. I don't know if you've flown to New York on the, uh, the London City flights. No. But it's fantastic. I mean, you go from this tiny airport, you check in 20 minutes beforehand or 30 minutes beforehand. It takes about four minutes to board the plane. Um, you preach clear customs in Shannon. It's a brilliant little service. But it's now gone down from two flights a day to one me what's going on here because in terms of utility particularly given how close it is to the city you'd think that a small plane of 48 seats uh connecting you know the city of london with change planes in challenge no you do you the plane um you you get off and go through customs right you clear american customs while the plane's refueling right it can't take off at london city with a full load and a full tank of fuel yeah on the way back, it's fine. You just come straight in, but um, it can't take off from city fully laden. Um, so you refill. Actually, Shannon's incredibly beautiful, mm. and you just make a few phone calls, take your luggage to the customs, reboard the plane. Um, and I was asking, why is this failing? And the reason isn't because of individual preference of the passenger. I don't think. I think what it is is that if you're a PA or you're a travel agent, you'll never get fired. Or blamed for doing the boring thing so the default is book him out of Heathrow into JFK why because if you book Heathrow JFK it may not be optimal for the guy at all but if anything goes wrong he'll blame British Airways if you do something eccentric and book him out of London City or Gatwick whatever if anything goes wrong he might blame you so the more we can disguise our decisions as non-decisions it's why it's why huge committees exist It's to give people the confidence of feeling that they won't be held solely Mm -hmm. accountable for a decision. And it's effectively burying accountability so that you distance yourself as far as possible from the consequences of your actions, which reaches its apotheosis in bureaucracies and heavy bureaucracies, where, you know, the only thing, you know, in a kind of very bad civil service environment, it's simply a rule is don't cock up, job for life. You know, I'm being very unfair there. I mean, but but I mean, the the worst manifestations of bureaucracy undoubtedly create that kind of thing. So, what it creates is a culture. Gerd Gigerenzer, brilliant German psychologist, calls it defensive decision making, where you just do the safe thing because um, uh, um, the brain is quite heavily calibrated to ask the question, "What's the worst that can happen?" Mm. And actually, what's the worst that can happen with Heathrow JFK is my boss. You know. Uh, you know, uh, the plane's cancelled, he gets grumpy with British Airways. What's the worst that can happen if I book him from London City? He shouts at me. Yeah, what's this? I mean, I live vastly closer to Gatwick, and yet my PA knows this, fortunately. She's very good. But, I mean, every time you ring our company travel agent and ask for flights to the States, you just get a line. Now, Ogilvy, New York's vastly closer to Newark, Um, I live vastly closer to Gatwick in London City, but you just get the standard Heathrow option, Heathrow, JFK. Newark's in many ways a better airport than JFK, actually. And the only reason people use uh, JFK uh, are Americans who have New Jersey snobbery. But but it's one of those things where you go with a default option because the default option may be highly suboptimal, but it has a lower chance of catastrophe. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of behaviour, a lot of business behaviour is conditioned by this, don't do anything weird because... The second you put your head above the parapet, you're in the firing line. Yeah, and so part of the problem, I think, of we've created a rather fearful business culture. Um, You know the you know it's very much a case where capital, not labour, has the whip hand, and all manner of things from technology to immigration to outsourcing to offshoring have all driven the same trend, and so workers, I've suddenly become a bit Marxist, unexpectedly, but the workers don't have the confidence to innovate under those conditions. And, I mean, and by the way, I mean, I'm talking about this defensive decision-making, as Gerd as Gigerenzer explains. I mean, it's very, very prevalent in medicine. In other words, the doctor, the doctor knows that you can get sued for inaction much more easily than you can for action. So it leads to excessive intervention in medicine. Well, I'll put this person in for this exploratory operation, because hell, there's just a 1% chance it's something serious. Um, But you know, the operation itself may carry a certain degree of risk, but let's face it, I can't get sued for this. I've handed it over to a consultant, someone else's problem. Whereas if I say, look, to be honest, if you just go home and wrap up warm, you'll be fine in three days. Overprescription of antibiotics to kids, I'm sure, is absolutely rampant because of the same effect. And so it, it is worth remembering that, you know, there are a lot of biases that mean that we do the same thing as everybody else. And we do the same thing we've always done because it doesn't arouse much comment. But, you know, so there's a reason. And Ogilvy also has a, has a, a very long tradition of promoting from within and people either staying for a long time or leaving and then coming back. So there is a form of social capital at Ogilvy because of that longevity, whereas if you're in that kind of business where the average person stays three years, you know you you know the yeah. the, the game changes yeah. rather a lot,
0: and the trust evaporates even more i think the the other thing I wanted to cover was that uh, we I, I talked at the event we're at, and you had some interesting perspectives on purpose, the purpose that we all have and the the absence of it. You know, as soon as you remove... Well, this is the
2: strangest thing about the United States. Okay, I I don't
0: know how many American listeners you have, but I regard their holiday
2: allocation as actually a... um, I mean, it's more or less... uh, I mean, I I regard it more or less a crime against humanity. The idea of two weeks annual vacation. You're there living in a bloody interesting country. I'm not even sure, by the way. I'm not even sure that the United States wouldn't be richer, just as Henry Ford partly introduced the two-day weekend. Uh, part of Ford's self-interest was that if workers had a two-day weekend, it was worth them buying a car because you had somewhere to go other than church. Okay, you know, I mean, a car—the convenient way to get to your local church. Um, uh, but, but I mean, if you, um, I'm not even sure that if Americans had a greater amount of leisure, given that leisure spending creates more employment than buying manufactured goods, it's not, and also that money is spent locally rather than on the other side of the world. It's not even axiomatic to me that America wouldn't be richer overall with more holiday. It I mean, didn't lead to higher productivity. That's the... Worst. Well, no, I mean, that, that's the other thing, which is, I mean, weirdly, I don't think British GDP fell much during the three-day week. Now, for, for, for younger viewers, i.e. viewers under 45, this was a period of intense fuel shortages in the 1970s where Britain, to save energy, worked a three-day week. And there's some evidence that GDP more or less remained constant, which might suggest that this element of arse covering and bullshit work is actually a very large amount of our activity. That if, I mean, one of the advantages I heard that when Mitsubishi went into a four-day week, People cut out a lot of bullshit because they were really eager to get Friday off. So they had far less patience with what you might call padding
0: activity. I wonder if that would, be, would persist over time, though. Would the four-day week suddenly... When it, when it's so countercultural, it probably feels different. So but if th- everyone was doing a four-day week... One of the things we look at, and I always slightly... I, I don't want to work on an oil rig, but I slightly envy
2: that oil rig thing, which is sort of, what it, is it, three weeks on, two weeks off, or whatever they do. Um, Canadian lumberjacks do something very strange in terms of their work patterns as well. Um, but experimentation with it, obviously it's difficult because of coordination, where a client-driven business, uh, you know... Well, actually, you don't have to be in the office when your clients ring, but you have to
0: be available. I totally accept that. That's a give. I saw an agency in Liverpool that had gone down to a six-hour day. And the, the first thing is, when you first hear that, you go, well, that seems quite brief. And, and then you start thinking, well, if you add in their electronic communication, the yes. fact that all of us take a phone call, as long as it's not from a bar's number, we all take a phone call whenever it comes The, the BlackBerry led people to do sort of something like six hours extra unpaid work that's every right, yeah. week that's right they, they, the they say it's two hours a day now they say and and the interesting thing are like so whether it's between six and ten but they say it correlates to 50 percent of people who check their emails out of work hours uh, exhibit signs of stress yeah and it's not i mean at
2: some level having demarcation lines which used to be provided by your location you know um they were also provided actually just by social norms in that someone could ring you at the weekend at home i mean I'm, finally i've talked to um in the very last days of arthur anderson we had them as a client and they're actually a wonderful client i was terribly upset to see them go um but in the last days of arthur anderson talking to one of the older partners there he said i was routinely called you know on my mobile phone at the weekend and he said now lots of people at the office knew my home phone number before the mobile phone came along he said But the only reason they phoned me at home is if the office was on fire. Okay. Suddenly, the mobile phone provided you with permission to call people at times which would have seemed a monstrous impertinence Mm. only 10 years before. And there was a kind of license to do it.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact...
2: we, what we need to do is, we need to have a slight, just a slight counter, a, a technological counter revolution against this. And one of the things I would value would be the ability to send emails with a delayed send function, which is, I want to get this off my chest now and I, I want to get this damn thing sent. I actually don't want to screw up your weekend with it. Can I please just have this damn thing or sit in the cloud for a weekend and then arrive on Monday at 10 o'clock at some civilized hour? Whereas at the moment, you just press send and the engineers behind it assume that the best form of communication must be instantaneous. Mm. Now that's true in information theory, if you're an engineer or dealing with telephony. Um, Human communication and technological communication are very, very different things. There are certain assumptions, which I think Silicon Valley thinking has, which come from engineering. Which is faster is better, you know, all feedback is good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which simply aren't true. And we need to we need to have a little bit of a counter-revolution where we start setting lines of you don't do this after that. Yeah. I mean, Miles Young, who's the former chief executive of Ogilvy, he he tried to adhere to the principle where once you sit down to dinner, that's it. And I think I think if we don't accept the fact that people have lines, maybe the lines Maybe people draw different lines. I mean, me as a 51-year-old person who commutes has different desires from a 23-year-old who has a 20-minute journey into work. You know, in my case, the big, the big gain is I, I actually get into work late, but I travel on a slow an empty train. It's empty partly because it's a bit late and partly because it's slow, but I get a table. And by the time I get in at 10 or whatever, um, you know, I've done an hour's worth of email on the train. So my commuting time is effectively negligible. Mm. And I've got a very mischievous suggestion, which is what Google really needs to invent isn't the driverless car, it's the driverless toilet and shower. Because then if you think about it, it doesn't matter if you live half a mile away from London, because if your journey into work is spent actually going to the loo and having a shower and getting dressed, mm. it admittedly well, has to be a pretty smooth moving vehicle.
0: My colleague in America has got a Tesla, he says you put it on your um you put it on self driving yeah. on the way to work and he says it transforms your relationship with your commute because he sits at the wheel and like it's autopilot it's self driving yeah. basically but you need to be there but it transforms your relationship with with your commute because it no longer feels it's tax and actually the most productive time of your day it now feels like me time i'm sitting here powering through emails and it's like a little cubicle actually
2: reframing the commute i mean reframing travel and transportation is a very very big
0: task because
2: one i mean one of the things i I was saying earlier is that if i were in charge of government the first thing i'd do is i'd mandate that train companies sold off-peak season tickets you could upgrade to a peak journey on a one-off basis but you could buy an off-peak one and secondly for part-time workers they sold sort of carnets you could buy 100 journeys for X, and then use them in the course of the year. Because part-time workers are very, very badly treated. Mm. They're often the poorest people, and they're very, very badly treated by the rail pricing system. And and the the standard season ticket is designed for a Victorian commuter. Mm. Incredibly unfair to part-time workers. It also, by the way, I mean, I also feel sorry for the railway companies as well, because There is that very weird ingratitude. Now, because I travel, usually I'm happy to go to work very early or very late. I won't travel at peak time because my argument is, well, I just, you know, if the train's completely rammed, I'm basically wasting my time. Uh, You know, I've got no table. I've got nowhere to sit. This is just ridiculous. So by going in very early or very late, I've I've always had actually a, a weird affection for the journey because it's pretty productive. I get to look out of the window. But also, I mean, let's let's not forget this. I don't know if how far... Do you, do you live in London? Or not get, too far. Not too yeah. far. But my argument is, look, I grumble about Southeast trains as much as I like. But the simple fact remains that I'm not really grumbling that much. They do mm. actually save me quite a lot of money. And actually, the journey into Charing Cross today doesn't take much longer than getting to Charing Cross from Fulham. It's a very, very strange thing in terms of the way people frame what is London and what isn't. I mean that's a real I mean in, in property terms, I think you could create huge property value and completely shift the appreciation of where people live if you got rid of the tube map. I think it's it's an enormous biasing effect. Because yeah. a lot of people in North London assume that South Londoners travel to work by bus. That's right. It's a fantastic rail network.
0: Or if you called the Thameslink, which goes up to sort of Hertfordshire, yeah? oh. if you called that the the, the Hartford line. And you put it on the tube, then all of a sudden it sort of transforms think, your yeah. perception. Well, I mean, it's because we're right next yeah. to the Blackfriars. Yeah. Bloody
2: dream. Yeah. And the, I mean, it is, it, it, and actually, of course, Crossrail will have a huge effect. I think it brings an extra million and a half people within 45 minutes of mm. central London. Uh, I mean, that will have very big sort of centrifugal effects, I think, on where people can live. Uh, you know, I, th- I think people need to reframe the commute because I always get a bit irritated if people say, well, you're getting in late. I go, well, yeah, but you started work when you got into the office. I started work an hour earlier. And, I, and now, now I'm in the office because I've cleared all that shit. I can spend my time doing what I can only do in the office where the office has what economists would call a comparative advantage, which is spending some of my spare time wandering around and chatting to people at random.
0: Absolutely. But that's where the results-only work environment comes in. Because yeah. No one is ever permitted to say to someone else, you know, half day when you're wandering at 11. It's like you're an autonomous being. If you're not doing your job, you'll be fired. But don't ever criticise anyone for... Even they say, if you fancy going to watch Beauty and the Beast mid-afternoon, Go and watch Beauty and the Beast mid-afternoon. Like, their whole thing is, you know, that can be... As long as you're doing your job, we're not going to But it starts rules. off that the whole...
2: Um, it's not Home Depot, is it? It's um, Best Buy. Best Buy. Best Buy. Uh, the whole thing has to start off with a whole period
0: of deprogramming. Absolutely. So you have to have sort of yeah. post-moony deprogramming. Yeah, there's like the cleansing of the system. Mm. And they, they say that they spend 90 minutes now just going through all of the possible things that could be there. But, you know, we've all recognised, haven't we? If you're running late and then the train's delayed, that sense of anxiety, you walk into an office because you're scared someone's going to make a sarcastic comment. You know, I mean, in, in Japan, the train company
2: hands you a chit that certifies right. that your train was late, so that you can right. present it to your employer. <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> fortunately the our railway thing is generally people do believe us when yeah. the train was late. But you're right, that sense of anxiety. Um, I mean, oddly, I, it's one of the things I say to Natalie, my PA, is look... Is there are any sort of paid speaking engagements uh, for Ogilvy which involve a two-and-a-half-hour trip to, say, Manchester or Liverpool, I said, default to yes, because actually the four hours I spend on the train, provided it's mid-afternoon, the four hours I spend on the train will be the most productive four hours Absolutely. I spend all week. It's magical. Virtually, Virgin have got the Wi-Fi fairly well sorted. I mean, it's, it's several trains I've been on now recently have been quite impressive. Not as impressive as Swedish railways, which seem to make the Wi-Fi work even when you're in the middle of bloody nowhere. Um, but it, 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 they're getting there on that. It's, you know?
0: it's down to that old thing, though, isn't it? When someone's staring out the window and someone says to them, "Have you got no work to do?" And like, "This is my work," you know, that uh, that's thinking. Uh, uh, the reason I joined uh, advertising was I remember I went to J. Walter Thompson for a
2: kind of graduate interview. And they had a talk from a creative person there who said it was very strange to be a creative director because it's one case where you look down the corridor and if everybody's looking out of the window, you're happy that they're doing yeah. their jobs. I but I mean, there is a, va- there's a value to randomness and there's a value to um, downtime. I think we all know it instinctively, but the urge to signal busyness. The other point, by the way, which interests me about that Best Buy experiment is pretty low staff turnover. Um I suspect, actually, um, one interesting case is that companies which are pretty close to a railway station tend to have low staff turnover. There's case, I think, Solomon Brothers moved being right next to Victoria Station. Uh, <laughs> they actually had the problem, which is they could never get rid of any of their older staff because they'd move out to Haywards Heath or Brighton. It, was such, it was such a joyous yeah. commute that, in fact, people stayed. Now. This is an interesting one. If you look at America and their two weeks two weeks vacation, okay. Taking three weeks vacation is considered morally dubious in the United States. I had one friend who wouldn't accept a job at Google because the two weeks was non-negotiable. And she said, well, you've got to, I know, I'm an expat. One of the weeks has got to be spent visiting my friends and family back in the UK. So I'm effectively left with one week to discover the United States. This is, this, and because they, they wouldn't budge. She turned down the job. Now the interesting thing about the United States is three weeks vacation would be called four would be considered a monstrous indulgence, and the Germans take six, and they're perfectly productive. But yet retirement's considered completely virtuous. Now retirement is a terrible thing, because you take everything you have in your head, you take a lifetime of, of experience, and in the space of one day, you remove it completely from the uh, you know, the, the corporate um, brain. You know, it's like a sort of, you know, it's a minor corporate lobotomy when somebody retires. It basically takes away this chunk um, irredeemably. Now, if you had more flexible time, you know, I, do, I don't think it's a good idea to retire completely. I think you either, you know, sometimes it's bad for your health because you're just not doing enough. I don't play golf or anything like that. I'd probably just turn my retirement into a massive box set bin, to be honest. Um, but also, um, you can become a bit of an arsehole because you put the same amount of energy you used to put into your work into what is essentially daily trivia. And so my, both my father and my father-in-law both worked into their late 70s, not full-time, but they did something. And it was pretty beneficial. You know, it was, it was really healthy both for them and the people they worked for. And I think that business that if you, and actually, I think it's a case where the old and also women with children or single parents can make common cause which is if you make this a bit more flexible, you're going to have a lot back in return in exchange for not much. So, you know, I mean, you know, at the age of 65, I, I, I still want to be in the advertising industries. You know, in some ways, you know, you're with youthful people as well. It's good for you in that respect. You know, I wouldn't want to disappear from it completely. Equally, I don't want to be getting up early five days a week. Mm. So developing some sort of flexible approach is really useful in Keeping on, what is a huge wealth in many cases of both contacts, uh, a, a huge wealth of experience, um, and to be honest, you know, older people have a sense of proportion, but also the the teaching value. Now, pretty much everything I've really learned, big, uh, in my twenty nine years in the industry, you've learned from someone who's older. Than I'm not by the way, I'm not dissing younger people, but the really big stuff you learn from the Paul Feldwicks and the Jeremy Bulmores and the Drayton Birds and the people who are sort of ten or fifteen years older than you. Um when I was at university, one of the most important things at university wasn't the university. It was that one of our friends was a mature student called Ray Fagg, who was doing architecture. He was then he was then 45, I think. He was younger than I am now. We all called him Gramps, of course. <laughs> we had we had absolutely no sensitivity. But he, before he decided to go to university to do architecture, he'd organized the three Isle of Warrant festivals with his brothers. Uh, he'd been an Art Deco furniture dealer. Now, actually, the amount you learned from him was as much as you learned from the rest okay. of the university. He was a fantastic yeah. guy. Rubbing, rubbing up against people of different ages, different age cohorts, is really valuable because they have a different set, they have a different set of priorities to you, but they have different proportions to you, I think and it, you know it often worries me about the ad industry you know, it worried me about the ad industry reaction to brexit which was you know i don't mind the fact that you disagree with this result but the fact that it baffles you mm. is worrying it's not your job to work in advertising and to be totally confused by the motivations of half the population mm. you know that shows a real failing but i mean if you end up with very young very very um, metropolitan or cosmopolitan people all drawn from a very similar background, you can completely lose um, touch with what's really going on out there and what other people's priorities are.
0: Not. Yeah, I, I, was, I was judging something last year and, and uh, one of the, the young people in the room of an agency uh, came out with a comment, so 23-year-old came out with the comment, no one watches TV anymore. And I thought, yeah. What? You don't know, and of no, course, you know, I the, the person from ITV went crazy about it. Because it's just, firstly, it's subjective and it's so far from what the
2: reality is. And even, by the way, even that person who said it watches a hell of a lot of TV. They may watch it on a slightly different screen or they may download it first. But it's still TV. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, that is, by the way, an extraordinary thing which people say. Um, And, uh, yeah, those kind of generalisations... Which aren't even true of the bubble to which they refer. In fact, but they're certainly not true of the whole yeah. of the population. I mean, that's uh, that's exactly the kind of crap which uh, uh, which we've really got to protect against because it is a it is very very easy to uh, and actually I mean yeah uh, you know, I, I think uh, you know Silicon Valley being so geographically concentrated um, poses a slight threat and the strangest thing about it, the whole place is that you have this place full of people who are convinced they're going to solve the world's problems, and the place itself is a total shit hole. So you go to some fantastic.com and there's like a wino asleep in the doorway. San
0: Francisco's homeless problem is,
2: is absolutely is one of the most. So you kind of these, these people going to the office, going, "We're going to change the world," and they can't even improve their own absolutely. doorstep. And the strangest other thing is, the Wi-Fi at San Francisco Airport is shit. Isn't <laughs> the, you know, the infrastructure, the roads are potholed. And generally crappy and atrocious, yeah. and yet shit these people are absolutely convinced them yeah, somehow. Totally. Somehow they're, they're the. You know, it's a great panacea to everything yeah.
0: is coming out of this town. But I think especially if you go there with a Western uh, a Western European perspective where you walk around cities and you go to places, then yeah. you see things that they just don't see because it's such a car-dominated society. Oh so a lot, oh, yeah. of, a lot of the people I've worked with who live in San Francisco get an Uber to and from work, but it costs them $6. And it means that they don't step over that guy who's lying in his own faeces on the in the doorway. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's, it's astonishing. So... We all go into the office, going, man. There's a guy shooting up out there. They're oblivious. they come into some underground right. car park. and gone up in a that's lift. That's right. Yeah. So I made a comment to a colleague. Actually, I said my shoelace just came undone out there, and uh, I'm either throwing those shoes away or I've got Ebola. But you know, like the, and she was like, I think that's racially, like that. un- yeah. Racy. She said that that's a racially unacceptable comment. I said I walked through it. I don't, you know, when I'm walking through it, that is not a racial issue for me. That's like a poverty issue. That's yeah, of course. But you know, they don't walk through it, and so they've they've they sort of they allow themselves to compartmentalise with their perspective of that situation. And the
2: quality of the roads is just. uh, There's a very interesting guy who's uh, um, uh, in the valley, but is from Poland, and he blogs. I wish I could remember his name. But he makes the point. He said, you know, I go back to Poland and I see the new roads and the new street lamps and the new hotels and the shopping malls. And he said, all of this has been done since the fall of communism. You know, we built every damn thing, you know. And I come out to San Francisco, which is notionally much, much richer. And, um, you know, there are holes in the road. <laughs> they infrastructure everywhere
0: that 30 mile radius area has generated more wealth in the last 50 years you wouldn't, you wouldn't than anywhere it, on the planet but you would not know it, it would you no and just i
2: mean was, detroit you know in fairness to the car industry it, you know okay detroit's i'm now in a supposedly in a renaissance at least but i mean detroit was a magnificent yes. city in the, you know in the 1950s and 60s i mean it was an astounding place and the so the, the failure for it for any of the money to stick yeah i mean it, i think i think the problem is a coordination problem and i think one way to solve it would be so for example in the united states is you know you might say the holiday thing is status quo bias most people, I think, would like a little less money and more vacation. As I said, I'm not even—it's not even clear to me that more vacation would impoverish the United States overall. Service industries are quite labor-intensive. I mean, the United States is an amazing place to go on holiday as a Brit, because there's nowhere around—no one around. I mean, you, know, you go to the Grand Canyon. If the Grand Canyon were in Europe, be heaving with Germans mm. half the year, right? No, they're all at work, you know. And so the—I mean. But the, the way to change it might be through experiment. And you just say, okay, we're going to do a collective experiment where for two years everybody in the United States is going to take more vacation and then we'll have a collective decision on whether we want to stick with it or go back to the status quo ante. And yeah, I think in in offices, in individual offices, certainly, I mean I mean, what is interesting is to take a few niche groups, which might include very young people who you know, if you if you take anybody who I mean very interesting. Uh, um thing, you know, let's say you're an Australian working in Ogleby. Well part of the reason you can the only sane reason you'd leave Sydney uh is to see Europe. You know, maybe the deal is okay, what you want is longer weekends or yeah. something like that. Four day
0: week while you're
2: here. Or four day week while you're here so you can actually go off on Thursday. Something allowing people to time shift is probably essential to um helping London infrastructure along without impossible um, perhaps politically unacceptable mm. spending spending a huge fortune on London is a bit awkward if you look at the uh general wealth imbalance in the UK and so one way of achieving that is to say okay what we'll do is we'll broaden the shoulder particularly of the morning commute the evening commute is actually slightly broadened by trips to the pub and mm. so forth but if you can broaden the morning commute a bit which definition will probably broaden the evening one too and if certain percentage of people will work four days of 10 hour days um then one of the things you could do is you could make far better use of existing
0: infrastructure rather than having to build more we've just got such a um ridiculous attitude to that though haven't we in the sense that like you say if you come in at 10 everyone thinks yeah rory doesn't work that hard rather than he just does a different no no,
2: no. And, and, and interestingly i mean you know weirdly if you stand around chatting to people in the office you look lazy whereas if you go to your desk and stare at the email yeah. you look busy do the daily mail website in your office no one knows no no of course no one knows. facebook yeah. no one yeah. knows but i mean the interesting thing is arguably if you're in the office the very act of emailing things in the office um is exactly not the point yeah. you know like having a crap it's something you should do at home
0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince.
1: Go to Quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think
2: that's probably that's probably the way to end, isn't
0: it? Yeah. (laughs) Thank you to Rory. All of the episodes are on our website, eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. You can tweet me via the internet. You could Go on to our Twitter handle. Retweet all the episodes to the point that I'm worried if you're trolling me or stalking me. Whatever you want. Anyway, have fun. Stay in touch. Bye.